Section 19 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 11. Charlemagne and His Government. Part 1. What, then, was the government of this empire of which Charlemagne was proud to assume the old title? How did this German warrior govern that vast dominion which, thanks to his conquests, extended from the Elbe to the Ebro, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, which comprised nearly all Germany, Belgium, France, Switzerland, and the north of Italy, and of Spain, and which, sooth to say, was still, when Charlemagne caused himself to be made emperor, scarce more than the hunting-ground and the battlefield of all the swarms of barbarians who tried to settle on the ruins of the Roman world they had invaded and broken to pieces. The government of Charlemagne in the midst of this chaos is the striking, complicated, and transitory fact which is now to be passed in review. A word of warning must be first of all given touching this word government, with which it is impossible to dispense. For a long time past the word has entailed ideas of national unity, general organization, and regular and efficient power. There has been no lack of revolutions which have changed dynasties and the principles and forms of the supreme power in the state, but they have always left existing, under different names, the practical machinery whereby the supreme power makes itself felt, and exercises its various functions over the whole country. Open the almanac, whether it be called the imperial, the royal, or the national, and you will find there always the working system of the government of France. All the powers and their agents, from the lowest to the highest, are there indicated and classed according to their prerogatives and relations. Nor have we there a mere empty nomenclature, a phantom of theory. Things go on actually as they are described. The book is the reflex of the reality. It were easy to construct, for the empire of Charlemagne, a similar list of officers. There might be set down in it dukes, counts, vicars, centeniers, and sheriffs, Sibini, and they might be distributed in regular gradation over the whole territory. But it would be one huge lie, for most frequently, in the majority of places, these magistracies were utterly powerless and themselves in complete disorder. The efforts of Charlemagne, either to establish them on a firm footing or to make them act with regularity, were continual but unavailing. In spite of the fixity of his purpose and the energy of his action, the disorder around him was measureless and insurmountable. He might check it for a moment at one point, but the evil existed wherever his terrible will did not reach, and wherever it did the evil broke out again so soon as it had been withdrawn. How could it be otherwise? Charlemagne had not to grapple with one single nation or with one single system of institutions. He had to deal with different nations, without cohesion, and foreign to one another at one and the same time, to assemblies of free men, to landholders over the dwellers in their domains, and to the king over the Ludes and their following. These three powers appeared and acted side by side in every locality as well as in the totality of the state. Their relations and their prerogatives were not governed by any generally recognized principle, and none of the three was invested with sufficient might to prevail habitually against the independence or resistance of its rivals. Force alone— varying according to circumstances, and always uncertain, decided matters between them. Such was France at the accession of the second line. The coexistence and the struggle between the three systems of institutions and the three powers just alluded had as yet no other result. Out of this chaos Charlemagne caused to issue a monarchy, 
strong through him alone, and so long as he was by, but powerless and gone like a shadow when the man was lost to the institution. Whoever is astonished, either at this triumph of absolute monarchy through the personal movement of Charlemagne, or at the speedy fall of the fabric on the disappearance of the moving spirit, understands neither what can be done by a great man, when without him society sees itself given over to deadly peril, nor how unsubstantial and frail is absolute power when the great man is no longer by, or when society has no longer need of him. It has been shown how Charlemagne, by his wars, which had for their object and result permanent and well-secured conquests, had stopped the fresh incursions of barbarians, that is, had stopped disorder coming from without. An attempt will now be made to show by what means he set about suppressing disorder from within and putting his own rule in the place of the anarchy that prevailed in the Roman world which lay in ruins, and in the barbaric world which was a prey to blind and ill-regulated force. A distinction must be drawn between the local and central governments. Far from the centre of the state, in what have since been called the provinces, the power of the emperor was exercised by the medium of two classes of agents, one local and permanent, the other dispatched from the centre and transitory. In the first class we find, first, the dukes, counts, vicars of counts, centeniers, sheriffs, scabini, officers or magistrates residing on the spot, nominated by the emperor himself or by his delegates, and charged with the duty of acting in his name for the levying of troops, rendering of justice, maintenance of order, and receipt of imposts. Second, the beneficiaries or vassals of the emperor, who held of him, sometimes as hereditimonts, more often for life, and more often still without fixed rule or stipulation, lands, domains, through the extent of which they exercised, a little bit in their own name and a little bit in the name of the emperor, a certain jurisdiction, and nearly all the rights of sovereignty. There was nothing very fixed or clear in the position of the beneficiaries, in the nature of their power. They were at one and the same time delegates and independent, owners and enjoyers of insufruct, and the former or the latter character prevailed among them according to circumstances. But altogether they were closely bound to Charlemagne, who in a great number of cases charged them with the execution of his orders in the lands they occupied. Above these agents, local and resident, magistrates or beneficiaries, were the Missi Dominici, temporary commissioners, charged to inspect, in the emperor's name, the condition of the provinces, authorized to penetrate into the interior of the free lands, as well as the domains, granted with the title of benefices, having the right to reform certain abuses, and bound to render an account of all to their master. The Missi Dominici were the principal instruments Charlemagne had, throughout the vast territory of his empire, of order and administration. As to the central government, setting aside for a moment the personal action of Charlemagne and of his councillors, the general assemblies, to judge by the appearance and to believe all the modern historians, occupied a prominent place in it. They were, in fact, during his reign, numerous and active. From the year 776 to the year 813, we may count thirty-five of these national assemblies, March parades and May parades, held at Worms, Valenciennes, Geneva, Paderborn, Aix-la-Chapelle, Thionville, and several other towns, the majority situated round about the two banks of the Rhine. The number and periodical nature of these great political reunions are undoubtedly a noticeable fact. What, then, went on in their midst? What character and weight must be attached to their intervention in the government of the state? It is important to sift this matter thoroughly. There is extant, touching on this subject, a very curious document. 
a contemporary and counsellor of Charlemagne, his cousin German, Adalbert, abbot of Corbic, had written a treatise called Of the Ordering of the Palace, De Ordine Palati, and designed to give an insight into the government of Charlemagne, with especial reference to the national assemblies. This treatise was lost, but towards the close of the ninth century, Hinkmar, the celebrated Archbishop of Rheims, reproduced it, almost in its entirety, in the form of a letter of instructions, written at the request of certain grandees of the kingdom who had asked counsel of him with respect to the government of Carloman, one of the sons of Charles the Stutterer. We read therein, it was the custom at this time to hold two assemblies every year. In both, that they might not seem to have been convoked without motive, there were submitted to the examination and deliberation of the grandees, and by virtue of orders from the king, the fragments of law called capitula, which the king himself had drawn up under the inspiration of God, or the necessity for which had been made manifest to him in the intervals between the meetings. Two striking facts are to be gathered from these words. The first, that the majority of the members composing these assemblies probably regarded as a burden the necessity for being present at them, since Charlemagne took care to explain their convocation by declaring to them the motive for it, and by always giving them something to do. The second, that the proposal of the capitularies, or in modern phrase, the initiative is naturally exercised by him who wishes to regulate or reform, and in this time it was especially Charlemagne who conceived this design. There is no doubt, however, but that the members of the assembly might make on their side such proposals as appeared to them suitable. The constitutional distrusts and artifices of our times were assuredly unknown to Charlemagne, who saw in these assemblies a means of government rather than a barrier to his authority. To resume the test of Hinkmar, after receiving these communications, they deliberated on them two or three days more, according to the importance of the business. Palace messengers, going and coming, took their questions and carried back the answers. No stranger came near the place of their meeting, until the result of their deliberations had been able to be submitted to the scrutiny of the great prince, who then, with the wisdom he received, from God, adopted a resolution which all obeyed. The definitive resolution, therefore, depended on Charlemagne alone. The assembly contributed only information and counsel. Hinkmar continues, and supplies details worthy of reproduction, for they give an insight into the imperial government and the actions of Charlemagne himself, amidst these most ancient of the national assemblies. Things went on thus for one or two capitularies, or a greater number, until, with God's help, all the necessities of the occasion were regulated. Whilst these matters were thus proceeding out of the king's presence, the prince himself, in the midst of the multitude, came to the general assembly, was occupied in receiving the presents, saluting the men of most note, conversing with those he saw seldom, showing towards the elders a tender interest, disporting himself with the youngsters, and doing the same thing, or something like it, with the ecclesiastics as well as the seculars. However, if those who were deliberating about the matter submitted to their examination, showed a desire for it, the king repaired to them, and remained with them as long as they wished, and then they reported to him with perfect familiarity what they thought about all matters, and what were the friendly discussions that had arisen amongst them. I must not forget to say that, if the weather were fine, everything took place in the open air, otherwise in several distinct buildings, where those who had to deliberate on the king's proposals were separated from the multitude of persons come to the assembly, and then the men of greater note were admitted. The places appointed for the meeting of the lords were divided into two parts, in such sort that the bishops, the abbots, and the clerics of high rank might meet without mixture with the laity. In the same way the counts and other chiefs of the state underwent separation, in the morning, 
until, whether the king was present or absent, all were gathered together. Then the lords above specified, the clerics on their side, and the laics on theirs, repaired to the hall which had been assigned to them, and where seats had been with due honour prepared for them. When the lords laical and ecclesiastical were thus separated from the multitude, it remained in their power to sit separately or together, according to the nature of the business they had to deal with, ecclesiastical, secular, or mixed. In the same way, if they wished to send for any one, either to demand refreshment, or to put any question and to dismiss him after getting what they wanted, it was at their option. Thus took place the examination of affairs proposed to them by the king for deliberation. The second business of the king was to ask of each what there was to report to him, or to enlighten him touching the part of the kingdom each had come from. Not only was this permitted to all, but they were strictly enjoined to make inquiries, during the interval between the assemblies, about what happened within or without the kingdom, and they were bound to seek knowledge from foreigners as well as natives, enemies as well as friends, sometimes by employing emissaries and without troubling themselves much about the manner in which they acquired their information. The king wished to know whether in any part, in any corner of the kingdom, the people were restless, and what was the cause of their restlessness, or whether there had happened any disturbance to which it was necessary to draw the attention of the council-general, and other similar matters. He sought also to know whether any of the subjugated nations were inclined to revolt, whether any of those that had revolted seemed disposed toward submission, and whether those that were still independent were threatening the kingdom with any attack. On all these subjects, whenever there was any manifestation of disorder or danger, he demanded chiefly what were the motives or occasion of them. There is need of no great reflection to recognize the true character of these assemblies. It is clearly imprinted upon the sketch drawn by Hinkmar. The figure of Charlemagne alone fills the picture. He is the centerpiece of it and the soul of everything. Tis he who wills that the national assemblies should meet and deliberate. Tis he who inquires into the state of the country— "'Tis he who proposes and approves of or rejects the laws. "'With him rest will and motive, initiative and decision. "'He has a mind sufficiently judicious, unshackled, "'and elevated to understand that the nation "'ought not to be left in darkness about its affairs, "'and that he himself has need of communicating with it, "'of gathering information from it, and of learning its opinions. "'But we have here no exhibition of great political liberties, "'no people discussing its interests and its business, interfering effectually in the adoption of resolutions, and in fact taking in its government so active and decisive a part as to have a right to say that it is self-governing, or in other words, a free people. It is Charlemagne, and he alone, who governs. It is absolute government marked by prudence, civility, and grandeur. When the mind dwells upon the state of Gallo-Frankish society in the eighth century, there is nothing astonishing in such a fact. Whether it be civilized or barbarian, that which every society needs, that which it seeks and demands first of all in its government, is a certain degree of good sense and strong will, of intelligence and innate influence, so far as the public interests are concerned, qualities, in fact, which suffice to keep social order maintained or make it realized, and to promote respect for individual rights and the progress of the general well-being. This is the essential aim of every community of men and the institutions and guarantees of free government are the means of attaining it. It is clear that, in the eighth century, on the ruins of the Roman and beneath the blows of the barbaric world, the Gallo-Frankish nation, vast and without cohesion, brutish and ignorant, was incapable of bringing forth, so to speak, from its own womb, with the aid of its own wisdom and virtue, a government of the kind. 
a host of different forces, without enlightenment and without reason, were everywhere and incessantly struggling for dominion, or in other words, were ever troubling and endangering the social condition. Let there but arise, in the midst of this chaos of unruly forces and selfish passions, a great man, one of those elevated minds and strong characters that can understand the essential aim of society, and then urge it forward, and at the same time keep it well in hand on the roads that lead thereto, and such a man will soon seize and exercise the personal power almost of a despot, and people will not only make him welcome, but even celebrate his praises, for they do not quit the substance for the shadow, or sacrifice the end to the means. Such was the empire of Charlemagne. Amongst analysts and historians, some, treating him as a mere conqueror and despot, have ignored his merits and his glory. Others, that they might admire him without scruple, have made of him a founder of free institutions, a constitutional monarch. Both are equally mistaken. Charlemagne was, indeed, a conqueror and a despot, but by his conquests and his personal power he, so long as he was by, that is, for six-and-forty years, saved Gallo-Frankish society from barbaric invasion, without, and anarchy within. That is the characteristic of his government and his title to glory. End of chapter 11, part 1